Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, who will replace Andrew Scheer as leader of the Federal Conservative Party? Boris Johnson has won a commanding majority in the UK. Where does that leave Brexit? And is your home secure when it comes to hackers? That's every device in the house. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, Andrew Scheer announced his intention to resign his leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. Uh, he's going to stay on until a new leader is found. And again, didn't really address the issues that everybody's been talking about since the election, which to me, I think is part of the problem. Uh, let's bring in Christine DeClercy, is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science. Dr. Christine DeClercy, a Department of Political Studies and a research fellow with the Centre for the cooperatives at the University of Saskatchewan and is with us now. Christine, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome, Scott. What's it like in Saskatchewan today? Well, actually, Scott, sorry. Um, I'm at the University of Western Ontario. Oh. Um, but I have a long-standing affiliation with the University of Saskatchewan. Oh, okay. There you go. All right. So you can't give us a weather report from Saskatchewan right now. No, but I'm pretty sure it's cold. <laughs> I was going to say. All right. Your thoughts on what went down. I, I guess a lot of people aren't surprised that we are where we are, but I think the timing surprised a lot of people. What are your thoughts on, on uh, the leader of the Conservative Party stepping down? Well, I, I think we all understand that Mr. Shear put in an honest effort to try to receive feedback from his party, from his caucus, from sort of the elder states people of the Conservative Party. And the universal message was uh, one of dissatisfaction, and clearly he didn't believe he had the resources or the support to move forward, and so he stepped down. And really, I think, given um, the desire for change in the leadership, that was an honorable thing to do. Uh, many would agree with that, but why not just address that? Why not just position the party moving forward as opposed to uh, what we've heard today and then the political cartoons that sort of come out afterwards? Because to me, this was part of the problem. There's a lack of transparency. There's, a, you know, where's the honesty in politics? I mean, you don't have to literally walk the plank, but just give a graceful thank you very much and move on. Why, why, why did he just not admit what everybody has known since the election? Right. It's a, it's a good point. I think first there's, um, you know, we have to appreciate that politicians uh, live in the public limelight and they don't have many opportunities to save face. And regardless of the party, when it's time to leave, uh, politicians almost always cite family reasons. Of course, the real reason has very little to do with their family. So I would look at his pointing toward his family as, as a standard face-saving uh, statement that all politicians make. I also think it's worth keeping in mind that certainly the the conservatives are 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 divided they're going to be even more divided as the different leadership candidates line up now to replace him so he didn't want to further communicate the division within his party um to the public and and we have to appreciate that in Canada we have a long tradition of allowing the political parties the conservatives and all the others to conduct their internal affairs uh, with some modicum of, um, you know, privacy and, uh, you know, a lack of transparency, if you will. That's sort of a tradition here in Canada. Many thought that uh, post-election and vict- uh, the, the, some say a lack of performance, although he did have a victory in some ways, um, 
many said back then, well, we'll give him a chance, see what happens. And he didn't really seem to change his tone at all. Uh, why do you think he didn't sort of try to learn from what happened in the election? How do you think he's feeling in regard to that right now? Right. Well, I, I, I should say I'm, I'm not a confidant of his, um, but I, I do study political leaders, and I've certainly looked at the many cases before him of leaders, particularly in the conservatives, who have all of a sudden found themselves without support. And I think certainly, you know, he probably feels very regretful. I think in his mind, he, he gave it his best. And he's still a very young person. So I also wouldn't write him off necessarily. We can think of the example of Joe Clark, who also was a young uh, politician who was uh, bumped out of the leadership position. And he hung, he hung around to serve the Conservative Party as a senior statesperson for a very long time and in a very admirable way. So I wouldn't necessarily think that he is done in politics, although he's certainly done as leader. Many have said uh, they're looking for a more modern uh, version of a conservative, a more modern leader. Um, Are you surprised he didn't pick up on that? I mean, again, even if he has the beliefs and the values that he does, which we all respect, he didn't seem to be able to convey that to people. Well, I I don't disagree with that statement. I think, though, that um, we have to appreciate that all parties are amalgams of different groups. And the conservatives have uh, a strong contingent, a strong interior group that represents people with socially conservative views. But that's not the only group. There are many other groups, uh, fiscal conservatives, Western conservatives, urban conservatives. And so I think Mr. Shear's personal views reflected uh, not only his own view of the world, but also uh, the views of a good portion of his party. And what the conservatives have to sort out now going forward is is how to bridge, how to find a leader who can bridge these these different groups. And that is very tricky. And, uh, you know, we'll see what sort of leader they ultimately choose. They may well actually end up choosing someone who's not really all that far different from Mr. Scheer. Um, you, uh, you brought up an interesting point, and it seemed that at the beginning, or, or post just right after the election, uh, many were saying he wasn't, um, uh, I don't know if, if I even like using the word progressive, because that can take on so many different meetings, but even a, a modern version of, um, and then versus the social conservative, it seemed uh, by, uh, you know, a few weeks after the election, he had both ends of the party, both ends of the spectrum of the party that, that weren't supporting him. There wasn't much to go, wasn't much room to wiggle after that, was there? No, I, I think if we think about Mr. Shear against his predecessor, Mr. Harper, the two men actually ideologically were quite similar. The difference is Mr. Harper, once he became leader, moved very quickly to control the party and to control dissension and to put his stamp on the party. And everybody and- criticized him for that, oddly enough. Oh, yes. No, no, definitely. But but what's undeniable is he managed to hold a, a somewhat fractious group of groups together. And Mr. Scheer uh, really uh, just didn't manage to do that. And that's one large difference when we think about the approach of each and, and the capacity of each to govern their own party uh, that we now know is, is, is quite different. How is the West feeling today with your relation to, to Saskatchewan? What, what, uh, how do you think they're feeling? Well, I, I think this is actually one of the most interesting divisions in the Conservative Party right now. We have to remember that the that the modern Conservative Party is is uh, uh, a, 
a product of really the old reform conservatives and the central and eastern progressive conservatives. And when I think about the, what's hap- been happening in terms of the leadership contestation between those two, two wings, the Western conservatives really do strongly prefer to, to, to view the modern conservative party really as, as still part of their own creation. Um, so I expect that we will see at least a couple of Western conservatives put their names forth to lead. And part of the leadership contestation will be between the Western conservatives and other conservatives in the rest of Canada. Uh, you mentioned earlier that we could get just another version of Andrew Scheer. That being said, isn't this a time for the Conservative Party to rebrand itself, to redefine itself, to, to, to make it so it's not your grandparents' Conservative Party? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and the paradox of leadership contests is that on the one hand, they offer every party a chance to reinvent itself, to, to modernize, to update, to reach out to new groups. And that's a very positive thing. The flip side, though, is leadership conventions and the politics of leadership selection are always very acrimonious and divisive. And so on the one hand, you know, the, the party and the members, the actual people on the ground have a choice to either rebuild and rebrand and move, move ahead or focus on the politics of division, the politics of power, the politics of control. And it's not really clear to any of us right now which way the membership is going to go, but they definitely have an opportunity to rebuild or to simply continue uh, pushing and pulling and trying, you know, each faction trying to control a party that ultimately won't be very competitive because it's divided. It seems, and and the lack of uh, any sort of commitment or even comment really on climate change sort of drove this point home, but um, is this is this a modern party? I mean, is this a party that needs to uh, to get itself into 20, uh, 2020, 2019. Is this a party that's, that, that needs, uh, you know, it's not, it's not the party of two or three decades ago, or perhaps it is, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, it, it just didn't seem to progress over the last decade. Things have changed quickly. Uh, what do they have to do, especially well, to attract young people? Right. Um, well, I, I, I think, you know, the good news is in the wake of this past election, and, and we have to remember, like, like this election is still cooling. Like, we're, we just finished it. Um, the party analysts and the senior states people have a lot of data. They have a lot of information as a consequence of Mr. Shear's listening tour to assess what happened in the campaign. What could we have done better? What do Canadians want that we didn't deliver? This, these sorts of questions, they actually have some way to answer, answer them now. What I think is tricky is that we have to remember the Conservative Party is, a, you know, tends to attract small-c conservatives, people who value tradition, people who value community, people who, who really aren't necessarily oriented toward rapid change. And that is one of the questions of small-c conservative politics. How do you take a party that is so deeply imbued with tradition and keep it updated as society and technology changes ever ever more quickly. It seems in politics, Canadian politics, whether it's Ontario or federal politics, that the Liberals have constantly, over the last decade, kept moving and inching closer and closer and closer to the left, farther and farther and farther to the left, always in the hope of running the NDP off at the pass. And, you know, when when that happens, the pendulum swings to the right and, and, and then we seem to get opposite extremes on the right. Does anybody see the gaping hole that's left in the middle? Well, 
I would disagree with you a bit. You know, Mr. Uh, the former liberal leader, uh, Mr. Kretchen, used to say, and, 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 and he used to be accused of, but I think he accepted this truth that the liberals ran on the left during campaigns, but they governed from the right. That is to say, uh, they tended to straddle left and right, i.e. the middle. So I don't um, think we've seen that with uh, the current prime minister, have we? I mean, anyway, the, the pipeline would be an example of that. We're, we're just now seeing movement on that. I'm sorry I interrupted. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I would just say that if, if we think back, you know, if we want to explain how, how is it that the liberals have stayed so, so successfully in power, part of the answer is that they have the capacity to move to the left, left when it suits them mm. and to move back to the center when it suits them. And the conservatives, the modern conservatives, especially with Mr. Bernier's People's Party on the far right now, and that party is not dead, we have to remember, he fielded 338 candidates in the last election. They, so the, for the conservatives, they, they have much less play. They have much less capacity to swing toward the middle. And um, at, at least under Mr. Scheer, they, they, they didn't have that much room. We'll see what happens going forward. Uh, Ronna Ambrose, when she was the temporary leader, said uh, they needed a kinder, gentler conservative party. What can they do to modernize or attract a younger voter? Uh, well, parties always draw strength from their grassroots. So if the conservatives decide that to go forward, they have to attract more young people, they have to modernize the message, then the answer lays within their own membership. They have got to access their own members. They, have, they've, they can reach out to younger, uh, newer, uh, urban people, the kinds of people who, they, um, women, the kinds of people they didn't really attract in large numbers in this, this election. Um, but that takes vision and that takes planning and that takes coordination and unity. So that takes a, a leader who can do that. Uh, any, any thoughts as to who may replace Andrew Scheer? Uh, I think it's too early to say. Certainly the 2017 leadership contest featured um, a large field. I think there were 13 registered candidates. And uh, I expect... Similarly, a, a good number of people will make themselves known as contenders over the next few weeks. Uh, what does this mean, last question, what does this mean for the opposition, both the Liberals and the NDP? I think it's an early Christmas present for the Liberals, to be honest. <laughs> they, they never could have anticipated that, that their main opponent, and it's worth remembering that the only two parties that have ever governed Canada have been the, uh, at the federal level, the Liberals and the Conservatives, so the, the Liberals' main opposition party just initiated a very divisive leadership race. So they, it may well benefit them. Dr. Christine DeClercy has been with us, Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Studies, Research Fellow with the Center for the Study of Cooperation uh, Western. Thank you so much for the time, Christine. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you, Scott. Take care. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about Andrew Scheer stepping down as Conservative Party leader. Uh, let's bring in Michael Diamond, Conservative Political Pundit. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So your thoughts when you first heard of all of this, uh, surprised? Uh, you know, I was both surprised and not surprised at all. Of course, it was surprising because Mr. Scheer had been so emphatic over the last few months that he wasn't going to step aside. But with the feedback he was getting from his uh, the post-election summary meetings, it was becoming incredibly obvious that uh, party members were not in line with uh, Mr. Scheer and that he was going to either uh, leave on his own terms or leave his convention. 
So uh, is this a chance to rebrand, redirect, refocus this party? What, what What is going on behind closed doors now? What should this new leader be? Well, look, I think, you know, this new leader needs to be uh, someone who can relate to the Canadian public. I think that's really what we need to focus on as a party. The policy direction, the beliefs of the party, those are all good. Those won the popular vote. And, of course, that's not how an election's determined in this country. But those are all good signs of a very strong and vibrant party. So what we need is someone who will be comfortable in articulating a vision of values and prosperity and the future to the Canadian public. And I think that's where Mr. Scheer got a little caught up that he uh he, he he got caught up in his own head not not that he was out of line with the canadians uh, public or out of line with the members of the conservative party but that he had trouble expressing what he actually meant does the conservative party realize what you just said uh, I, I think any successful leadership candidate will uh, uh, understand exactly what I said, and unsuccessful ones will uh, have no clue what I just said. So uh, it will be incumbent upon them to either seek my counsel or uh, or, 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 or be as smart as I am. Well, it, you know, I, I've talked to some conservatives, and they said, "Well, you know, uh, the public's just looking for this. The public's like looking just just looking for that." It's like it's up to you guys to figure out uh, how you communicate with that public and how you get uh, the message across. It's not up to them to come to you. What does the party need to do to attract younger voters? You know, it's all about authenticity, frankly. That's what the public wants to see. You know, we talked about lower taxes during the election, and and, as, uh, and now we see in the throne speech from Justin Trudeau, they're talking about lower taxes. We know we know what Canadians are looking for, and they want an authentic and relatable leader to sell that. So I think, you know, getting getting more younger votes uh, into the Conservative cause is very important. Uh, the easiest way to talk about attracting younger votes is letting them age to a demographic where they're going to vote Conservative, but that's not sustainable for electoral purposes. So absolutely. You know, a, a credible articulation of a climate plan is something that has to be very important. That doesn't mean uh, adopting a carbon tax, but it certainly means uh, something more than what Mr. Shear was offering. Uh, talk about climate change a bit, because it seems that was the one uh, issue where uh, they did look aged. Uh, as you said, not necessarily what the liberals are doing. What do they have to do? Yeah, they need to present a very comprehensive conservative climate plan. And we've seen that from conservative premiers across the country, via Brian Pallister in Manitoba, who Catherine McKenna actually called Brian Pallister's plan the best of all the provinces, or Doug Ford's plan here in Ontario, uh, which are conservation measures, environmental efforts, green efforts that are not based on carbon pricing or carbon tax. It's possible. Uh, it's something that the Canadian people can believe because they believe in these provinces. Uh, Andrew Scheer missed the mark on it, and that's what will be incumbent upon the next leader to do. Not do what Conservative MP Michael Chong will do if he runs for leader, where he'll be proposing his own carbon pricing. It's going to be looking at what these Conservative premiers have successfully done, present a credible case on environmental protection that's not based on carbon pricing. I know when you have to step down or, you know, are in a public uh, position like uh, like Andrew Scheer was, it's never easy, but I found it odd that he used his family as the reason he was stepping down when it was so obvious he was getting heat from both ends of the party. Why did he not just stand up and say, you know what, it's obvious the party's going in different directions, we, we need to, to refocus our leadership, we're going to have a, um, uh, you, you know, uh, another leadership uh, review and so on and so forth and, and choose a new leader and, and just gracious step down. To me, this is what Andrew Scheer's problem was. There was lack of transparency and dishonesty. He, he, he tried to present something that was actually something else. And I think that's how he got into trouble. 
Well, I, I think, I mean, look, that's not a uh, unfair point that you raised, but I do think that the situation yesterday, one of the changes that occurred for Mr. Scheer was that those who opposed him uh, decided that inserting his family as an issue was right. fair game. Right. And for him, that was a bridge too far. I think he was willing to fight on the merits of his leadership, but over uh, that uh, of how his leadership has impacted his family was a step too far for him. How do you think the opposition is viewing this? Look, I think, you know, if you're the liberals, uh, this is both a huge opportunity and a huge downfall, a potential pitfall. Uh, you know, Andrew Scheer, known quantity, they obviously uh, were happy with the election results. They would have preferred to uh, got a majority mandate, obviously, but uh, they were not dissatisfied with how that election worked out overall. Um, a, a leadership uh, challenge can tear a party apart. We saw here in Ontario that the uh, four candidates were very cautious, knowing that the election was just around the corner, to not tear the party apart, and that's what's going to be in incumbent upon all the candidates running for leadership that Justin Trudeau is going to be the target, not each other. Because if they tear the party apart heading into in a minority situation where an election can happen at any time, that would be very helpful for the Liberals. If we get a robust leadership process where we focus on uh, better solutions for Canadians, we focus on Justin Trudeau, and we focus on building a stronger Conservative Party, they're in trouble. Do, do the Liberals realize that, uh, or are they looking at it uh, in the sense that, I mean, I guess it's a, a brief honeymoon period for them, but on the other hand, the opposition is reloading now. Uh, does that make the minority even more sensitive? Well, absolutely, because one thing we'll see is, you know, we know in this country, leaders come in, often new leaders, with a huge uh, honeymoon of public opinion uh, and public support. Uh, be the leadership process is a huge time for earned media. It's a huge time for uh, you to take your case, not just to the party membership, but to uh, the Canadian people. So a new leader typically comes in with a big band. So the Liberals are going to want to avoid a situation where we'll have a new Conservative leader uh, and uh, the Conservative Party is flush with money still that... Uh, uh, goes to the polls right away because that's going to be you're not going to have a better day uh, to be the conservative leader uh, than right after that leadership election uh candidates any idea who'll step up Look, I think, you know, last time in 2017 when uh, that leadership, a very prolonged leadership race happened, there were a number of very good and very strong candidates. But a lot of the big names sat out because they thought Justin Trudeau was inevitable. Yeah. And he was going to be prime minister forever. So we saw in that race people like Peter McKay, people like uh, 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 Rana Ambrose, uh, people like John Baird, uh, just say no, not, not this time. And uh, it will be interesting to see if any of them come back. Obviously, there's already sc- uh, scuttlebutt about uh, two of them. Peter McKay think he needs time to think about it, Rana. Ambrose not saying anything, but having very uh, favorable comments made about her from Brad Wall and uh, Jason Kenney. So I think appetite for both of them. And I think you'll see a lot of people within the caucus. Uh, also, Aaron O'Toole take another run of it. Michael Chong probably take another run at it. A uh, um, lot, of, lot of options, probably a candidate from Quebec, possibly Stephen Bellany or uh, Richard Martel. Uh, considering how Ron Ambrose did as interim leader, uh, does she have an edge here? I think she does. Look, the party really liked her. She did a lot in a very difficult period during a uh, fairly uh, personal leadership race to keep that party together, keep them moving forward, and was very popular. Uh, I've heard from so many Canadians, uh, so many uh, non-conservative voters. I would have voted conservative if Ron Ambrose was leader. So I think she definitely has 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 an edge, and she also has almost a, uh, an endorsement from the prime minister because he tapped her expertise in renegotiating the free trade deal with America. Wow, that's a good point. Uh, when she was t- Taking over as interim leader, she promised a kinder, gentler Conservative Party, but then after she left, that kind of went out the window. Do you think they will head back there? 
Well, look, I think that, uh, you know, the Canadian people want to see a results-focused government, not not, uh, not talking about two planes, not talking about Justin Trudeau, uh, you know, talking about Justin Trudeau's record, not about Justin Trudeau personally. So I think, yeah, that sort of outlook that she talked about uh, would be viewed as kinder and gentler and would be very well received by voters. Uh, what does your gut tell you about all this? When do you think we will have uh, a new leader of the Conservative Party? When do you think Canada will see that? Is that Look, before, I, is it before the April uh, powwow, or is it after? I think it's no sooner than the April uh, the April uh, uh, convention here in Toronto. Uh, it will be a one member one vote uh, convention or election, which last time occurred by a mail in ballot. Uh, the time before that, it was uh, in person voting, and all at the time three hundred and eight ridings across Canada at a polling station. So it will be it will be a one member one vote. But when it happens is critical. Uh, it would be a huge advantage to someone like Ron Ambrose or uh, Peter McKay if uh, the election was to happen soon uh, at that April. Mark, because the uh, turnaround to sell memberships would be very short. So it'd be basically the existing party membership selling, uh, uh, sorry, selecting the new leader. If it's beyond that, if it goes into the summer or even early, uh, early fall 2020, which I think there's still time to, considering when the election will likely occur, uh, there will be candidates having the opportunity to sell memberships. It would be very good for someone like Pierre Polyev, who uh, might not have the same national profile as Peter McKay, who we know won a leadership election uh, in 2004, when he was elected the last leader of the Progressive Conservative, 2003, sorry, when he was elected the last leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada, uh, that would give him more time to organize and combat that huge uh, presence and uh, uh, name recognition that Peter McKay has in the party. Michael Diamond, Conservative political pundit, has been with us. Michael, thank you so much. We know you're uh, waiting for a plane. Uh, appreciate you squeezing us in. Have a good weekend. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. Uh, Yesterday, of course, the big vote in the United Kingdom. Boris Johnson's Tories are in. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has stepped down from the leadership of the Labour Party. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Andrew Glencross is with us, Senior Lecturer, Department of Politics and International Relations, Aston University in Birmingham, and is with us now. Andrew, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure, Scott. So, uh, Andrew, prior to the actual election results, uh, we saw the polling. It certainly looked like um, uh, that Boris Johnson and the Conservatives were going to get a majority. How did this all translate? What were the results? How big or small was this win? Well, going up to the polling day yesterday, there was still uncertainty on the basis that it seemed as if there was a healthy lead of more than 10 percentage points for the Conservatives, but everyone knew that there was volatility in the minds of the electorate. So whether people actually stick to what they said, they would how they would vote to the pollsters. But in the end, it turns out that actually people did stick it to Jeremy Corbyn and his Labour Party, and it came out then with a very healthy majority for the Conservatives under Boris Johnson, probably even higher than he would have expected based on these final weeks of um, polling data. So he's done very, very well for himself and must be feeling extremely pleased about the whole affair today. Uh, Are you surprised, considering uh, what uh, the UK has been through with Brexit over the last couple of years? I am certainly surprised at the collapse of the Labour Party vote in its traditional strongholds and the way in which places that for generations have been Labour voters there were more than happy to junk the Labour candidate and 
get to bed with Boris and his agenda for Brexit and beyond, basically. So that kind of switch amongst a really large part of the electorate outside of London, outside of the big cities, that's really the major takeaway surprise from where I'm standing. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, stepped down from the Labour Party. Why the collapse? Why Why did we see the results we've seen? Well, it seems as if he was riding still on the wave from 2017 and there was this sort of myth about how he had beaten the odds and done quite well in 2017 narrowing the lead that had once existed when he was facing off uh, against Theresa May but that evaporated this time around it seems as if after more than two years not just of Brexit but of Jeremy Corbyn flip-flopping about Brexit about more and more stories about what's actually Jeremy Corbyn wanted to do with his agenda when it came to taxation, the baggage that he carried with his association with unsavoury characters, all of that really eventually ended up hurting Labour with their electorate. Did Corbyn promise another uh, another referendum on Brexit if he was to win? That became the policy, but it was something that he inched towards over the course of basically two years. He was under a lot of pressure to try and do something that would actually bring on board more of the pro-EU um, electorate. But in the end, it just wasn't convincing for either the people who were traditional Labour who had voted to leave the EU or people in the big cities, the more metropolitan, cosmopolitan types, let's put it that way, who were very pro-EU. He just couldn't get that coalition together. And in the end, his leadership really then has to be called into question. That's why it was inevitable that he had to go today. Uh, In the couple of years uh, that that the UK has been dealing with Brexit, it seemed that uh, the population was still greatly divided on whether they wanted to be in or out of the EU. Many said at some points it was literally half and half. Um, Because the Conservatives and Boris Johnson has now won such a, um, a large majority, is it just assumed now that the majority of those in the UK just want to push Brexit through? They they're for Brexit? Well, Boris Johnson, under first past the post, he's definitely got a nice majority in Parliament to do that. But of course, his party didn't get more than 50% of the actual votes that were cast yesterday. He came in about 46%. So technically, if you add up the different parties and their positions on Brexit, there's still actually a narrow majority of the um, electorate in favour of some kind of close relationship with the EU, if not continued EU membership. So there's still that fundamental divide. It's just that the first past the post arithmetic has translated into giving the very concise, the very clear message of the Tories, the Conservatives, a nice majority, which will really enable Boris to put his stamp on Brexit. Uh, that being said, though, even with the first-past-the-post system, if there was that many not voting for uh, 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 Brexit, I mean, don't you think that would have showed up? I mean, in the end, how did Boris Johnson win? It's more than just the first-past-the-post system, isn't it, if it's such a large majority, especially in, in areas that, that were traditionally Labour? It's definitely about having this geographical spread of right. appeal especially in areas then, as you say, that were typically Labour. And that's where Labour also has a lot of soul-searching to do. Why didn't they have the kind of nationwide appeal, big cities, small cities, diverse communities, more rural, traditional places? 
now that's the the big promise that Boris Johnson is making to say that look, it's the people's government as he's called it today. It's about one nation. It's about having an agenda that unifies the country. And of course, that means that Labour has to come up now under a new leader with its alternative. But at the moment, it's been really struggling to actually get that kind of sense of national unity of cohesion under a single sort of banner. And it's not clear how that will just somehow miraculously appear in the near future for them. So the UK is still very divided when it comes to leaving the European Union then? It's not divided in Parliament, as I say, but in the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've also got the regional divides with um, Scotland in particular now going very much towards the Scottish Nationalist Party. And on that basis, there's still a lot to play for when it comes to the type of Brexit that Boris Johnson will want to implement now. Uh, is it? Are many in the UK viewing this as just too late to turn back now, just get it done, we're frustrated, we're fatigued with it all? Brexit fatigue was definitely an issue, and that was where Corbyn was at his weakest as well. And so Boris, by promising to not extend beyond the end of January, then that will be the moment that Brexit actually finally, after all this time, five years on pretty much, four and a half years from the referendum, will actually take place. So that's now seen as irreversible. The chances of actually stopping that in its tracks now are zero because he has the majority in Parliament. It's just now a question of what will Brexit really look like? It be a Brexit that looks very different from how we are as an EU member state up until the end of January, or will it actually not be so different? In will those discussions be as um, as drawn out as what the last have been? Is this going to be as difficult as it has been uh, in the past? I mean, we've all seen what the UK has gone through in the last uh, couple of years. Obviously now uh, divorced, but working the deal out is as uh, much a, a bigger problem. Is that going to be as draining on the UK as all of this has been? I would have said yes on the basis of a small majority, but he seems to have a big enough majority now to really be able to knock heads together and get the legislation that he wants passed in relation to Brexit. So I don't think he's going to be under any pressure when it comes to the big crunch time, which is the middle of 2020, the middle of next year, which is the date in which you have to decide whether you extend this so-called transition period where EU law applies without the UK being an EU member state. And at the moment, he's always said he won't extend that. And he has the votes in Parliament whereby he won't have to unless he really thinks it's in the country's best interest. So he's really holding all the cards this morning. Any idea how long it's going to take to hammer out that agreement? That's really going to be the big question mark over the first year of his entire um this new parliament basically scott and so that could go relatively quickly but only on the basis that the uk would need to really meet the eu on its terms because all the terms have so far been proposed are the eu's terms the eu has in a sense language boilerplate that it can use for what it wants from the uk in that agreement but the uk hasn't got that in place with a strong majority now there's a chance to get that up and running quickly, but that's still not a dead certainty. So at this point, what's the buzz in the UK? Are people feeling the, that there's light at the end of the tunnel? Are they feel that they're, do they feel that they're over the toughest part? Uh, does it still feel like the country is in limbo, or does it feel a bit more stable today? 
it feels as if there's been progress because the past couple of years has actually been defined by a zombie parliament. So you've had a very weak executive and a very strong legislature. And that's not really how Westminster is supposed to play out, as you know very well from the Canadian model as well. So on that basis, the return to a strong majority, a strong government means we're going to have some clarity. And of course, it's also up to the opposition now to step up and provide meaningful opposition so that they can actually help shape the conversation about the type of Brexit that we're going to have. You talked about the collapse of the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn. What do they do now? How do they move forward? How do they provide opposition to all of this? Well, there the risk for them is that they don't move forward, that there's just going to be too much infighting, too much soul-searching, paralysis, and just the idea of trying to come up with new ideas and a new leader is actually very daunting because one of the big ideas as well is that they should try and maybe have less of a London-centric party, and that means trying to find a leader potentially that doesn't come from a constituency in and around London. And that's actually a tall order because there are no longer so many credible candidates who would meet that criterion. So they've really got a lot of internal work to do to try and think about how to stay relevant to the British electorate. How do you think the world is viewing this now? From the EU perspective, there's satisfaction, relief that you've got a clear result from this election. 2017, which was the opposite, just created two years of problems for the EU as far as those Europeans were concerned. And I think more broadly as well, Again, the idea that you've got a stronger executive, you've got the ability to pass legislation and actually get moving and not just endlessly debate the same issues and come to an actual decision now. I think there's going to be a sign of relief and a desire to actually work with Boris Johnson and his government now, globally speaking. Now that this does appear that, or it is, will eventually Brexit move forward, um, does this does this cure the divisiveness or does this initiate more separative talk? It has the potential to do both. In English terms, it has the potential to maybe heal those divisions if we also have a different kind of um, sense of spending policies and taxation and some more redistribution at home. But then there's the divisiveness when it comes to the future of Scotland, the future of Northern Ireland, Mm -hmm. places that yesterday voted very much against Boris Johnson, wanting very much an alternative to his idea about Brexit. So there's still that divisiveness, albeit in a slightly different constitutional form. What has the UK and really the world learned from the Brexit, uh, although it's certainly not over yet, there's still the deal to be uh, hammered out, but what is the world, what did the UK, what did we all learn from this? I think we can learn that there are no simple solutions. There are certainly some very nice sound bites and some packaged ideas that sound as if they are um, almost too good to be true. And it turns out that invariably they are too good to be true. And so on that basis, it's working out the details, the nitty gritty, and that requires diplomacy. It also requires strong government. But it also means that you need politicians that are prepared to be honest trustworthy about what the trade-offs involved in making tough decisions are. And of course, it's not always been the case that we've had that in the United Kingdom in the past few years, and we still might not have that as we speak today. So on that basis, I think the lesson is that we need to be thankful sometimes for when we have the 
in a sense, people who are prepared to lay it on the line and say just how difficult it is to take political decisions. We're having uh, similar issues here in Canada, chatter between the West and the East, Quebec and such. Do you think Brexit makes others, whether it's here or Scotland, uh, do you think it makes people think twice about separation? I mean, everybody likes to bark about it until they have to deal with the reality of it. I think there's very much, there's a lot to be said for that perspective. I think if you really start looking at what's happened to the UK since 2016 from the outside, one gets jittery about saying, actually, you need to hang on a minute, pause and think. Some things sound good on paper, some things sound good in theory, but when you actually try and implement that, when there are real lives, there's livelihoods at stake, are you really better off investing perhaps your time and energies in other kinds of policies and ideas because at the moment we're still talking about brexit four and a half years on and we won't be finishing that conversation for a very long time how how much damage has this done to the uk whether it's you know in society whether it's societal whether it's economic um is there a period we'll look back on history as the brexit period and and uh you you know uh, an era of flatlining of nothing really happening I mean, it's possibly not going to be something that you can quantify, but it's something that you can feel, you can pick up, perhaps. So that certainly we've had, since 2016 until now, a weak executive, very weak governments that have been unable, really, of putting through any other domestic legislation. We've also got a very weak opposition since 2016, whereby we actually have a population that doesn't want tight public spending constraints, austerity in other words, and yet what we've got in practice is still a government committed to austerity because the opposition hasn't been able to win that argument because in a sense Brexit got in the way as a wedge issue. So there is palpable damage, but it's just hard to put a figure on that. It's hard to put a number on that, but we'll be reading about that in the history books for years to come, I've no doubt. When we look back on history, what was the reaction when the EU was finally finalized? Was it one of celebration or was it the way everyone's feeling now? That's an excellent point because the EU was supposed to be about making sure you have strength in unity, you have collective ability to respond to international problems that you wouldn't get as an individual country on the global or European stage. But the birth of the EU coincides with the start of civil war, very bloody, awful civil war in the former Yugoslavia, and the EU is incapable of acting to try and resolve all of that. So it's very much mixed. And I think that's really a great trend in history, that we have all this optimism, perhaps, but then when reality dawns and you start thinking about what it really means to deal with the problems on the ground, it's a whole different story. Dr. Andrew Glencross has been with us, Senior Lecturer, Department of Politics and International Relations, Aston University in Birmingham. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Glad to help. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. And we're hearing more and more concerns, whether, you know, it's um, uh, Google speakers or or cameras or ring things or that. Uh, Other people being able to hack in and your life's there on display for everybody to see or hear.
recently, a, a situation which I'm sure you've seen on the news, a hacker gains access to a ring security camera in Mississippi uh, and used the speaker to uh, harass uh, the, seven, the eight-year-old daughter, telling her that uh, he was Santa Claus and encouraging her to destroy the room. Uh, unfortunately, though, this wasn't her brother from the next room over. This was some creep somewhere else, uh, an adult, telling her to do all this. Uh, to talk more and what we do and how we can protect, or protect ourselves, Derek Sardo is with us, president of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca. He's with us now. Derek, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. Uh, we've talked about this quite a bit. Are you surprised we're still hearing about it? No, but I am surprised. Uh, no, I'm not surprised we're hearing about it, and it's only going to get worse. But I am disappointed in people for not thinking through these whole situations. And one of the things that we talked about before is security, passwords, uh, two-step authentication. If we do these things that these companies provide, this, this example is, is um, Ring. So basically what's happened is somebody's hacked in to the username and password to this Ring account so that that person can put the Ring app on their phone and they can uh, they can just hack into the cameras or the security system or, or whatever we have. If they had been smart about it and, and put on two-step authentication, that wouldn't be able to be happened. So this all comes back to this thing being shipped out with a default password on it and a, cons- a customer or consumer not changing it. Is that what's happened here? Pr- pretty much. Uh, again, you, you, you're going to have to create an account. And so what, what happens, and, and, and from Ring's perspective, they said they have not been hacked, and that's a possibility. That's a pretty good possibility that they haven't been hacked. But what people like to do is use the same email and the same password for all of their accounts. Mm. So let's say that Facebook got hacked, or uh, let's say that Google got hacked. One of those accounts, they're just going to try every single service that's out there to see which one yeah, let's just let us in with that with that combination of email and, and password. So that's where two-step authentication becomes paramount. What we do in that situation is we we have that username or, or email and password, but we also have a second step. So it sends us a text message when an app gets registered, or it sends us a message on the phone which we need to uh, uh, click accept. So if we do two-step authentication. The likelihood of this happening is almost nil. Uh, how can Ring say that it hasn't been hacked just because they're coming in through other sources that eventually land them at the at your Ring account? That's that's usually the case. <clears throat> Again, publicly they haven't said that they've been compromised in any way, and they've done their checks from the media side, and they said that they haven't been hacked. But like I said. Any other source could be hacked. It could be it could be Canadian Tire uh, account. It right. could be it could be anything. They, they use the same username and password. As soon as they get that combination, then they go and try every service to try to get it, to try to get in your Visa number, your uh, your uh, account for your bank, uh, whatever it is. So chances are, with these with this couple it. that we're seeing on, or this family that we're seeing on the news, they could have been hacked in via other ways, and it just happened to gain. Uh, they just happened to gain access through the Ring system. Correct. Okay, and the other way they could have got that is on their home systems. Maybe they have some computers in the house, which which um, which doesn't have the right security on it, or doesn't have two-step authentication. If, if, the, if a hacker has 
that. Let's say they got it via email. And what could happen is they, the, the hacker puts something called a keylogger on. And a keylogger is now on that PC or that laptop or that tablet. And every time that people type on that, and uh, it's captured at the back end. So that's another way to get gain access to this username and password. How much of this is people buying these, whether it's, uh, you know, the speaker or the camera or what have you, and not actually putting in their own separate password? They're just using it from the, from the default password from the manufacturer. Okay, so that is true of all routers and firewalls that are out there. Pretty much most people don't change it. So it comes, it's, uh, you know, the username's admin, and it's got a, a password 01 or something like that. And so that's the default. And so that's not changed. But now with these new services like Amazon, um, Amazon devices and Ring and Google Home and, and Apple's uh, Siri, and, and um, what, they, what they do is they make you make an account. So for, for Ring, for instance, you have to make an account. The problem is people use the same account as they've used on other things. Right. So it's hard to tra- it's hard to track. So if you have, uh, you know, because I'm thinking we got we got uh, a couple of these Google speakers in our house and stuff, and you know, uh, I, I'm not convinced at all that my family has done anything to make these any more secure than they are when they come out of the box. What what do you have to do to something like that in order to make yourself secure? Okay, so. First of all, use a password that's not easy to crack. That's the first part. A lot of people want to use their, you know, their kid's name or their dog or their, you know, their birthday or whatever. Don't use anything like that. Don't use any words. Um, and make it a combination of things like symbols and numbers and capitals and, and non-capitals. And make it at least eight characters. The stronger you go, the harder it is to crack. But still, it's a password. So it can be cracked. Then you need to do is go to the service, whether whatever the service is. Let's say we're using Ring. Um, go to the service and just look for how do I enable two-step authentication. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's called multi-factor authentication. But that safeguards it. Even if the hacker does get your password, they still can't get in within the, without that second step of authentication. So um, if somebody has broken into your speaker or, you know, and I guess it's different if it's a camera, obviously, because it's a visual thing. How bad can this get? Like how what sort of problems could this create other than the fact that, you know, you're sitting in the tub and someone says hello right in the middle of your Super Tramp song? Just creepy, really, when you think about it. Um, First of all. Uh, think about cameras in bedrooms and and bathrooms and things like that. Really, they shouldn't be in there. uh, the excuse was uh, that they wanted to keep their uh, dog safe or something. Well, you know, th- th- just think about where you place these cameras. That's that's number one. Second, um, you know, uh, how scary, scary can it get? It can get really scary, especially when we have things like deep fakes. Have we talked about deep fakes before on the radio? Yeah, I bet. Yep. Where they do the... Um, uh, where, where, they, where they take video um, and make... Put your head on a porn face. star. Yeah, exactly. And it's actually getting worse to the fact that it's hard to tell. Um, There's a good good video out there by Jordan Peele. He does a Trump imitation. So it's actually Trump speaking, but... uh, It's manipulated. But he's got him saying different things. Wow. And and the video's so realistic, it's it's crazy. 
Um, so yeah, imagine capturing all of that video and being able to see or, or, or change what person says. It's unbelievable. It's kind of scary. Um, but please, everybody, two-step authentication. If I can't say it enough, I say it every single day in my business. Uh, here's an interesting question. Um, how do how to avoid continual invasive random scam emails which falsely identify themselves? So we've heard a lot about this. It's certainly now, at one time it was with the landlines. Now it's uh, obviously penetrated uh, into cordless devices and such. Any idea? How do you help people with these random scam things that look so authentic? Okay, so the first thing you got to do is you got to be smart about this. Is Microsoft going to send you an email saying your computer's not working? Let's think about that. Um, most people say, oh, what a, Microsoft just sent me this thing, and yeah. uh, what am I going to do? Most of the time, uh, not most of the time, all the time, without prompting, Microsoft's not going to send you anything. Apple's not going to send you anything. So what these, what these companies are doing is they're making these emails look exactly like they're coming from that company. Yeah. And, and we're, really what they're doing is phishing you. That's what this is called. They're phishing you in to click on a link. And so let's say that it says your account information is out of date. All right. Well, it looks it's got that Microsoft logo. It's got everything. It looks right. It's got their address and everything. But if you hover over before you click on any of those links, you will see where that will take you. And most likely it's not going to a Microsoft site. Hmm. And so what they're doing there is they're going to lead you to another site where they're, it's going to present, put your username and password in here. And it looks real, but the problem is it's not really Microsoft. It's not really Apple. It's not really Google. It is a fake site where they're trying to gain access to those things. That's pretty scary. Um, I've asked you this before, but uh, it certainly was, uh, uh, warrants uh, repeating. You know, you're, and you and many other uh, tech experts will say the same thing. It's password, password, password. This is the simplest way for you to protect yourself. Now we have so many devices, so many this, so many that. How the heck do you keep track of all your passwords? <laughs> it's, a, it's an age-old question. So um, a, a lot of times you can use password managers which actually would help the security because um, some of them... But what if somebody breaks into that? Then they got all your passwords. Well, again, you have maybe triple uh, checks on that one before you get into that account. So there are ways to protect it. Maybe it's a physical device. Maybe um, So biometrics are becoming very important. Uh, I'll take the example of Windows Hello. That's part of Windows 10 now. All the new devices have biometric capabilities, whether it's fingerprint or, or iris um, scan or a face uh, imprint, these are, are good and they're hard to fake. So e- even if you have, and, and we've pro- proven this with uh, something like a twin, an identical twin, somebody registers on the computer and then they have their twin go to, to log in, they can't log in. So as we move forward with this, it will get better because it will be harder for um, hackers to hack in. Uh, let's talk about wearables. There's been, uh, you know, lots of people have Fitbits or, you know, some version of that. Now uh, a lot are uh, coming out uh, geared towards kids. Your thoughts on wearable fitness trackers, are they good for kids? Well, I think they are. And I think if we use the, I think it's anything we can do to uh, entice our kids to exercise and, and be more active <clears throat> is better. So, uh, yes, I, I really like that uh, that whole culture. But again, everything's the same. When that kid has a Fitbit, there's going to be a username and password to that. 
and let the parents, uh, you know, make that account and secure that account with a multi-factor, and I think you'll be fine. Uh, what about kids being too conscious, too pressure of this? Should they not, you know, is it, is, it, is, it, is it good at that age to be telling them when to get up, sit down, shut up, all that sort of thing? Uh, is, it, is it invading our childhood in some way? Yeah, I mean, can you can you imagine that your mom had a camera on you in in your bedroom, Scott? <laughs> really? That yeah. is, that, it just it just creeps me out. Um, well, everything we've I, been talking about about these devices, it, it all applies to wearables as well. It does. I mean, everything has a, has has a camera in it. Everything has a speaker in it. Everything has a microphone in it. So yes, you you've got to use these things properly. Um, I see a day where everything is connected, and I and I do mean this. We've been talking about this a long time, mm-hmm. but the whole idea of this uh, this five G coming, and and how many devices we we're going to have connected to the internet in, in the next five years is just is just mind boggling. You know things that we don't think about. You know coffee makers and microwaves, and um, you know I, I saw I saw a microwave the other day that um, that you can take. And it uploads. You just tell it what product you have, and it knows exactly how to cook it. You know what I mean? Yeah, you don't even have to set the, the time. <laughs> Finds the directions. About, yeah. Do I think one minute? Do I think two minutes? Do I think high? Do I think medium low? No. You just go and and it goes to the internet, figures it out what the what are you what you're cooking, and just cooks it perfectly. No, when you think about it, you just you know you'd hold up the package barcode. It knows exactly what you're doing. It's. It is pretty cool. I mean, I like that idea. But again, these devices are going to be connected to the Internet. If something as simple as a light bulb is connected to the Internet, just imagine what's coming. Uh, so are wearables wise for young people? I mean, in, in a sense, you could always know where your kid is. Well, that's not a bad thing. I don't think that's a bad thing. Yep. I just, just don't want to watch what, what the kids are doing all the time. Um, <laughs> I just, you you just nice want to know. You just want to know where he or she is. You don't necessarily want a visual. Correct. <laughs> yeah. No. I, 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 my kids are uh, teenagers now, and they're smart about tech. Are they really? Now they I feel live with their dad. Now yes, I feel old. Are. How old are your kids now? Thirteen and sixteen. There now. you go. Yeah. Crazy, eh? So, do they know more about this stuff than you do? No, you're the only you're the only one whose kid is not smarter than you. <laughs> That's right, man. No, uh, most kids are. You know, the one one thing I see in them is their ability to take anything new and just uh, uh, apply what they know and and make it work. Yeah, which is which is good. And I think a lot of kids are like that. Uh, do you think when we look back at this generation, but I mean, even like if you get somebody who's in their 20s now, they're looking at kids and shaking their head. Are, are we going to look back at this and learn something? Is there something that's going to swing back? Is a pendulum going to swing back? Are we going to learn something about this? Is there a moral to this story? I, I don't think so. You know, when I look look through the, uh, the generations and I, I see... You know, I see. I look at my parents' house. You know, they're they're talking to their TV. They're they're saying watch TSN and they're uh, yeah, but they're only the doing that because they got a son like you, man. Like, let's be serious here. That's pretty no, no, for no. people for grandparents. That's outside the box. What's that? They take it upon themselves to learn themselves. Yeah. Yes, it helps that I'm their uh, I'm their son and I can push them to certain technologies. But yeah, they, they adopt it and they use it well. So I see that end. And then I see a five-year-old or, you know, we're really, 
not even five. Let's go even further. Let's go to a one and a half year old that knows how to swipe. And every kid does. Hmm. They pick up a device or a watch or a phone, and they know how to swipe to the next page. That boggles my mind. And you're not talking about candy stores or candy bars from the uh, thrift store. You're talking about just the, talking on the about, screen. Uh, you're not talking theft, about theft. No. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Derek Sardo has been with us, president of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca, to find out more. Derek, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. You too. Anytime. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.